Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Elise Jordan, along with Steve Schmidt. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Joining me today is our executive producer and my sometime co-host, Adam Levine. Well, thank you, Elise. It's great to be here. I'm so happy to be here today with my good friend, Dr. Eddie Gloud Jr. Eddie is the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor of Religion and African American Studies and the chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University. I have had a great time getting to know Eddie as a fellow MSNBC analyst, and we have the unique distinction of both being native Mississippians. And Eddie is one of the most brilliant people in my world, and I'm so excited to have him here to talk with us. Well, I'm just so delighted to be here with you. Finally, we get a chance to talk. (laughs) I have just read your 2015 book, Democracy in Black, How Race Still Enslaves the American Soul. And I was impressed with how many punches you throw. You really are incredibly unsparing and In a way that I think people hesitate to talk about race, you don't pull any punches when it comes to be it President Bush, be it President Obama, anyone, everyone. You're pretty equal opportunity, and that's why I feel the book is so important because at the end of the day, it is a book about opportunity. So the book starts out in Ferguson in 2014, and can you talk about why you decided to start the book in Ferguson, Missouri. You know, in some ways, it was the irony. Uh, first of all, let me just say thank you for, for saying that about the book. Obviously, you're a partisan in the sense that you have a position, that you have a set of commitments that animate what you take yourself to be up to. But what you try to do is you try to be balanced and thoughtful in the way in which you put forward your claims. And if some people come to be criticized, uh, then you offer it. And, and, and then other people who you might be you, most people think you're in, you're in solidarity with, they come in, uh, come under criticism, then you have to offer the criticism there as well. And while it's unsparing, it's definitely more than fair. And that's the fault <laughs> well, that underlies the premise of the book, I think, that we have been way too cautious in how we have addressed the underlying flaws of American democracy. Right, right. And, you know, I, I, I started in Ferguson because I thought something was happening there. You know, I thought this was a, a working class community. Uh, it didn't respond in a way that felt like it was consistent with the traditional racial theater where, the you know, the leaders, the, the typical leaders of, of black America come down, organize a march, make a series of demands. People say we're going to do better and then we sing Kumbaya and we move on to the next moment. Ferguson was something different. And I wanted to understand it. I wanted to understand the young folk who were who were involved in it. So I found myself in this meeting. I just came down after all of the lights had, and cameras had went away. And I, I found myself in this meeting at the TFA, uh, St. Louis T- Teach for America. And the students start talking. And then I realized that, wait a minute, I think I'm with some serious folks here, some folks who are in the middle of it. And it turned out to be Brittany Packnett and, and you know, uh, then eventually DeRay and, and others and Netta. And I was just like, oh, my God, I'm, I finally found – I'm at the epicenter of this thing. And so what I wanted to do is to kind of think about this moment, this opening moment and the irony of it happening in the context of the first African-American president. 
And that became the kind of opening scene to think about how race continues to confound us uh, and having everything to do with our refusal to look it squarely in the face. And I feel like you do a really excellent job of telling a broader narrative and inserting some key idea ideas and developing those themes. And let's start out with what you describe as opportunity deserts within our country. Right. So we were thinking about I was thinking about the, you know, the 2008 downturn. Right. And you you think about the uh, economic catastrophe and the stats about the effect of the great black recession, I still, my mouth is just I mean, you think about the entire gains of the decade of the 90s just gone. That in some ways, uh, you know, one uh, kind of an an analogy that might work would be we haven't seen this kind of loss of wealth, at least, since the collapse of the Freedmen's Bank in terms of black America. I mean, this this is huge. And one of the things, it's the housing crisis is at the heart of it because Black wealth was principally located in in homes. And so you had epicenters, right, whether it's Miami, whether it's Atlanta, you know, the richest county in Maryland, right, black county, right, their homes underwater in interesting sources. I mean, not interesting sources of ways, but homes underwater. Part of what I was trying to do is how do you respond to the, the specificity of that kind of pain? When Barack Obama was making claims that, you know, I'm not the president of black America, I'm the president of all America. And we were like, well, no one asked you whether or not you were president of black America, but you were president of a constituency that voted for you at 90 plus percent. How are you going to respond to this crisis? Can you imagine if Barack Obama had catered to that 95 percent of the voters who put him into office the way that Donald Trump caters can to his you base. Ima- Can you oh, imagine? He would have been impeached. <laughs> the hell that would have broken loose, right? So part of, part of what I was trying to do in that moment was to kind of describe the nature of the pain that I was seeing and experiencing on the ground. As people were talking about us making a turn out of the 2008 recession, that Wall Street was bouncing back and folks were still losing their homes and folk were entering into a brutal rental market. Folk were still trying to figure out how they're going to make ends meet because they were just re-entering the job market. All of this stuff was happening while people were telling us that we had turned a corner. The only thing I could conclude was that this is just another example of how black life is just devalued in this country. And that's what I tried to figure out, to offer language. And Opportunity Deserts became... One of the phrases that I came up with, which, you know, these are places, not where people are making bad choices. All human beings make bad choices. But these are sites where opportunities are just not available. You have choices that aren't good choices to make. And then I like the way you contrasted Paul Ryan's depiction of Janesville, Wisconsin, with your hometown of Moss Point, Mississippi. It's the selective memory. And this is kind of the broader point about when we talk about race in this country. And you make this point later in the book. What we put in and leave out of our stories tells us something about who we are. The 4th of July, Memorial Day, President's Day, and Martin Luther King Day are public rituals that tell a particular story about our national journey. And we aren't supposed to talk about the suffering. And when Paul Ryan describes Janesville, he doesn't talk about suffering. And it overlooks a really important part of the story for so many Americans. Talk a bit about why we don't talk about that story and what it says about the legacy of race in America. Well, if we tell the true story about our journey to now, we have to confront ourselves honestly. It's going to reveal 
that America isn't simply a shining city on the hill, that at the core of who we are is a kind of violence and bloody legacy that shadows uh, our principles, that shadows our commitments and our self-descriptions. It's like Peter Pan in Never Never Land. And one of the interesting things about Never Never Land is that you never grow up. And the reason why you never grow up is because you don't have to be responsible. And so the part of the part of avoiding responsibility involves avoiding the very things you've done. Right. So we have to tell ourselves a story that somehow the United States is this divinely sanctioned experiment and that we're always on the road, always, always on the road to a more perfect union. And so what I wanted to do is to is to kind of trouble that exceptionalist story, because what it does, it leaves out so much of the darker side. And see, at least we're from Mississippi. There's no way to tell the story of Mississippi without telling the story of the blood in our soil. There's a reason why the blues comes from that place, right? It has something to do with the darkness of Mississippi. And, and it's, it's this beautiful contrast because it's the most genteel space. You have some of the most, I mean, some of the loveliest people on the planet, some of the best food, right? I mean, folks are so sweet. But it seems like under the cover of that sweetness, there's this real ugly dark side. And, and we can tell stories about the dark side, people putting razor blades and in, in, in Halloween candy, giving it to black kids when I was growing up. I remember in Moss Point, the Klan burning a cross right in the fairgrounds, right, at the border of Moss Point and Pascagoula, right? There's this ugliness that's a part of who we are. So when we tell a story that blinds us to injustice, it actually reveals the limits of our conception of justice. And that, I think you coined the term the values gap. And let's uh, quote again from the book just because there's so much that's so quotable. We talk about the achievement gap in education or the wealth gap between white Americans and other groups, but the value gap reflects something more basic, that no matter our stated principles or how much progress we think we've made, white people are valued more than others in this country. And that fact continues to shape the life chances of millions of Americans. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was trying to get at this thing, right? So... What's at the heart of this? You know, what, why do we find ourselves on this hamster wheel? And it has something to do with this belief that some people are better or more valued than others. And it drives our social, political, and economic realities. So even at the moment, and I could talk about it in these kind of historical periods, at the moment in which the country gives voice or what will become the country gives voice to the principles of democracy in the context of the American Revolution, we reconcile those principles with the institution of slavery. That's the value gap asserting. Because you even had folks at the Massachusetts Bay Colony using the principles animating the Declaration of Independence and what would become the Constitution to make the argument that Massachusetts should free slaves, right? But it was rejected. But so here you have this moment where the principles of the revolution, the principles that undergird American democracy are denied to black folk. Why? Because they are viewed as somehow less than. Or you think about radical reconstruction in the moment in which we've just introduced modern warfare to the world and we've experienced a kind of carnage the world had never seen in the context of the Civil War. And we really have a genuine effort to build a multiracial democracy in this country. Right? We're introduced public schools. We can talk about radical reconstruction in a certain sort of way in all of its details. And what do we get in response? We get convict leasing. We get Jim and Jane Crow or, or racial apartheid in the South. And it's just, that's a reassertion of the value gap, right? So American Revolution introduces something very powerful. 
gets arrested by reconciling those principles with racial slavery. Radical Reconstruction, it's the second founding. The Civil War is the second founding. Reconstruction is an attempt to make it a concrete reality. That gets arrested by what? Convict leasing and Jim Crow. And then think about the mid-20th century. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the Civil Rights Movement. What do we get in response? We get calls for law and order. We get the tax revolt in California. Arrests. And then Barack Obama gets elected in 2008. Well, and this is part of the book that I found so interesting reading it in 2019. When you wrote this in 2015, at probably the height of Barack Obama's hold on elite thought. You know, I mean, it was it was a very symbolic presidency. He did a lot of great things, but you were unsparing when it came to describing (laughs) the crisis of what it meant to have the first black president and then to have Barack Obama execute policy in the way that he did. And so this particular excerpt, the start of Chapter 7, President Obama and Black Liberals, the opening line, who would have thought that the election of the nation's first black president would occasion the moment for this kind of crisis in black America? Barack Obama is, of course, not the reason we are between two worlds, but his presidency hasn't helped anything. Rather, he is emblematic of the problem. I got wow. in a lot of I got in a wow. lot of trouble. I know. For <laughs> I got in a lot. Of, I still get in a lot of trouble for that. If you're making people talk and think, you're doing uh, something ooh, right. I got in a lot of trouble for that. I mean, you know, think about remember that split screen in Baltimore, where you had all of the black mayor and the black chief, just chief of police and uh, black folk uh, rioting in in Baltimore, and then you had Barack Obama speaking, and it was very difficult for people to imagine how to talk about race with that image. Right. What and Barack Obama calling them thugs and 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 the like. Part of what I was trying to get at is that his ascendance was contingent upon a kind of quieting of his voice around the ways in which race right continued to organize our country. And I understand the challenges he faced, but I wanted him to be bolder in that moment because what happens is that he he actually at at the highest level continued the dance. And the dance is this overwhelming fear, or what motivates the dance is this overwhelming fear of triggering white fear. That if we talk about race, if we try to address specifically the ways in which race undermine right, our democratic form of life, then somehow it'll trigger something in white folk, and then all hell will break loose. And so I can't be seen as angry and you can't be seen as racist. All the while, in between, is all the stuff that continues that is to unsaid, happen. and then happens, and nothing changes. And so you're writing that circa 2015 era, and you call it a slow dance that Barack Obama was doing. And then now, what would you say Donald Trump did 2016 election, and is still doing now? I mean, talk about a dance that evolved into, I mean, I don't even know what to call it. Yeah, I mean, Donald Trump represents in so many ways the rot that's at the heart of the experiment. He embodies it. He's not exceptional. He's actually, he's been vomited up by us. He reflects us. And so he exploits our fears he mobili- That's the saddest part of it, that yeah, he reflects and he, us. And he mobilizes our hatreds. 
Um, I've said before, and you know, it's a controversial claim. I tweeted not too long ago that Donald Trump's argument for the wall is is the equivalent of people arguing for Confederate monuments. It has nothing. Confederate monuments have nothing to do with history for the most part, and Donald Trump's claim around the wall has little to nothing to do with border security. Both are monuments to ideology. Both are Symbolism. symbols of a particular understanding of who we take ourselves to be. So Confederate monuments were basically erected in the 1890s and the, in the first few decades of the 20th century and then in the 1950s. So in effect, in the moment of the nadir and in the moment in which segregation is being challenged. And so they are, they are symbolic representations of a form of life that's under threat, right, or trying to consolidate itself. And here we have Donald Trump arguing for the wall, and he's arguing for the wall in the context in which demographic shifts at least for some, seem to threaten the idea that America is a white nation in the vein of old Europe. And so he is, in some ways, a reflection of the latest instantiation of the reassertion of the value gap, right? So with Barack Obama, remember I talked about slavery, I talked about radical reconstruction, I talked about the mid-20th century black freedom struggle. When Barack Obama was elected in 2008, what was the response? The first part was the Tea Party. The second was a, a kind of proliferation of voter ID laws across the country to limit how black folk in particular and brown folk could vote. And then finally, Donald Trump. And Donald Trump represents in some ways the ugliest dimensions of the Tea Party. And the Tea Party represented, in my view, the uglier dimensions of the Republican Party. And so he is a reflection of us at the crossroads, you know, Jimmy Baldwin wrote in 1961 in Harper's Magazine an essay entitled The Dangerous Road Before Martin Luther King Jr. And there's this wonderful line at the beginning of that essay, and I'm paraphrasing here. He says, Dr. King is right that segregation is dead. The question is, how long will the funeral be? We're still in a funeral procession. And it's certainly timely coming up this week. It's hard to imagine if Martin Luther King were still alive and if we were celebrating his 90th birthday. And you have done a fair amount of writing about the legacy of Dr. King and how it's been shifted to suit that ideology of making us feel more comfortable, that he has been de-radicalized, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, picked his bones clean, yeah. Exactly. Well, <laughs> yes, you wrote in time. Martin Luther King has been dead for 50 years now, and over this half century, his bones have been picked clean. Conservatives invoke his name in defense of their vision of a colorblind society. Liberals use him to authenticate their own politics. Black politicians yoke his legacy to their own ambitions. Yeah, yeah. You see why I get in trouble all the time? <laughs> I love troublemakers. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I'm always kind of attracted to the last year of Dr. King's life. Uh, when he wasn't on the cover of Time magazine, when he wasn't seen as a prophetic voice, when most people viewed him as a traitor, the New York Review of Books said he, he the Times had basically passed him by, uh, when black power uh, advocates, some were calling him Uncle Tom, and, you know, there was a deep sadness in his eyes. And he I never knew about that episode, which I would encourage people to look up your essay in Time, talking about his Great Depression when he was in Mississippi and desegregating schools in Grenada and Andrew Young having to shake him from bed and trying to give him the will to keep going out and fighting after they just seen a 12-year-old boy have his legs broken yeah. for trying to go to school. Joan Baez had to sing him Pilgrim's, you know, Pilgrim's Sorrow to get him out of bed, you know. 
uh, to help get him out of bed. No, the last chapter of David Garrow's uh, Bearing the Cross charts the depth of, of that depression. You know, of course, the Taylor Branch um, biographies are, are really key in this regard, too. But there's a sense in which King realized that desegregating lunch counters, that the, the, the movement in its first iteration had not gotten to the core of what was needed. Um, he said that it seemed as if there weren't many consciences left, right? that people had somehow experienced a kind of racial fatigue with regards to the matter of, of racial equality. And, and part of what he was trying to come to terms with was, was, I mean, you can put it in this way. Stokely Carmichael, who, be, who would become Kwame Ture, who was the figure who gave the speech in, in Greenwood, Mississippi, announcing black power. Remember, Stokely Carmichael began his career as an activist, his life as an activist at Howard University with the National Action Group. And they were trying to desegregate in Maryland and other places. And he was committed to nonviolence as a, as, as a strategy, as a tactic. And had, in fact, put himself on the line for decades. And it was in the South as a part of SNCC that he'd seen raw terror. He spent time in Holly Springs. He spent time in Moss Point, desegregating desegregating um, uh, the swimming pool, right? My uncle worked with many of the SNCC organizers down there. And so by the time we get to 65, 66, 67, 68, these are children, 18, 19, who are now 24, 25, who've experienced all kinds of hell. So the idea that they're calling for black power, the idea that they've lost patience, that the idea that they don't think nonviolence is, is a pathway, right, isn't something that's an ideological shift. It's an experiential kind of conclusion drawn, that what they've seen, what they've experienced, what they've felt. Well, you've essentially been to war and you're traumatized. Exactly. And so King sees this. He sees what, why the cities are burning. He sees why these folk are, are, are angry, and he's trying to figure out, because he believes nonviolence and he believes the language of love is so central in order to save us, right? He's trying to figure out how to redirect this, and because he himself is persona non grata, Carl Rowan in, in Reader's Digest describes him as a sellout because his critique of Vietnam, you know, the, 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 the radical Nash, black nationalists don't think he's worth anything. He's caught in between. So there's a deep and profound sadness. And on this 90th, what would have been 90th birthday, I think it's important to remember that he was persona non grata. Yeah. You know, that that was not, that he wasn't at the height of his powers at all. Yeah. But the movement was already in turmoil and really struggling over the identity for the next incarnation. And the movement was in turmoil because the nation had done something that it had that it has been doing since its inception. It had turned its back once again on its principles. Right? So let's give you an example really quickly. Imagine a young Frederick Douglass as a slave. This is coming out of David Blight's extraordinary new biography on Douglass. So imagine a young Douglass as a slave. He could never, he didn't think of, he couldn't conceive of, of the end of slavery. But he lived until 1863. He lived, he was alive, he was a young man, he was a man in 1863 when the Emancipation Proclamation was delivered. And he saw, he lived to see slavery end. But by the time the old man's heart gave out on him, he saw the first Jim Crow law passed. He experienced what he called the apostles of forgetfulness. He saw the nation turn its back, right, on the promise of emancipation. And so here's King 
in this moment. Right. Listening to Lyndon Johnson say we shall overcome, seeing the the promise of of, of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights Act of 65. Right. Getting the last piece of major legislation passed in 1968 with the Fair Housing Act. Right. Trying to in some ways address the substantive and material condition of black folk. And then he sees the country turn its back. Right. And so he says at the, in Memphis on the, on the night before he was killed, oh, we got some difficult days ahead. And when you look at the video and you see his eyes, there's a deep sadness, right? He had the heart of a 60, 70-year-old man when he was killed. He was 39. And he was 39. And that concept of the gap between the founding, as I call it, mission statement. Yeah. <laughs> not, it's not what we were. It's what we yeah. aspired to be. And, and the reality. And in that same speech, you know, we all remember the end. But Dr. King said earlier in the speech, you know, but all we say to America is live up to what you put on paper, right. you know, somewhere I read right. about freedom, of, you know, and he said, if I lived in China or Russia or some other totalitarian country, maybe I would understand because they haven't committed themselves to that. And he, that was a consistent theme. If you go back to the March on Washington, March on speech, Washington speech, right? The, the, he, we're cashing the check. Right. And he consistently used that. And one of the interesting things that made me think after listening to your book was that stopped. People stopped trying to hold white America accountable for the words of the founders in the same way that Dr. King did. I just I feel like people gave up. It's, on that. It, 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 some people gave up because they didn't think it was pot that that. I mean, how can I put this? I put it differently. Some people gave up because their experience led them to believe that they wouldn't ever convince themselves. You know, my great grandmama. Uh, Ruby Wilson, when I went off to Morehouse College and came back, this angry black man, and she said to me, and she she was, you know, she spent her life uh, as a domestic servant on the on the coast of Mississippi, and she would never talk about her experiences in the homes of folk that she worked for. But we know that her retirement was a bunch of dimes that bought that amazing refrigerator, at least that had that extraordinary Kool Aid in it, and that stove that that made the best pinto beans on the planet, and hoe cake bread and stuff like that. Uh, but I came home angry. She said, I don't know why you're sitting up there dwelling on that. You know they're not going to change. Right? So you need to just go on and, and get yourself together because it'll eat you up. So it was this, uh, that's some Southern, black Southern wisdom. This is this kind of judgment that the reality of the situation is that our our faith in them changing. And why, right? So there's a kind of pessimism that draw that can overwhelm. And King's, see, this is the part of the problem when we normalize King's invocation of love. Because, in fact, we can't make it normal. Because, in fact, that's the miracle. What does it mean to invoke love in the face of the hatred? That's a miraculous gesture. Because human history is replete with examples of folk responding very differently to hatred. And so part of what I think King's witness represents, and I think uh, the black freedom struggle represents, is this this ongoing effort to get the country to confront itself for what it actually is, to put aside the illusions so that we can see each other as the human beings we are, and perhaps build a future together for our children's children that isn't overdetermined by this this belief that some people are valued more than others, because at the end of the day, the value gap distorts our character. In the book, I talk about the value gap in racial habits and fear. Those are the first chapters coming after the Great Depression, black, the Black uh, Recession. And the value gap 
is the belief that white people matter more than others. Racial habits is my, insist- my insistence that we not talk about unconscious bias because it gets us off, uh, lets people off the hook. Racial habits are the ways in which we're habituated to live race in the very ways we live our lives. So it's not just simply about loud racists. It's about folk who just want their neighborhoods to be nice and they want to send their kids to nice schools and they don't want their housing value to depreciate. The choices we're making day in and day out around the country when I was talking about it's like this. I believe the world is getting uh, warmer. I think climate change is real. But if you look at my house and you see my day-to-day choices, you would think I didn't think that at all. <laughs> right? So you don't have to be a loud racist or you don't have to be right an advocate kind of climate change denier to live in such a way, to reproduce the circumstances that that feed into those outcomes, right? And, and we, All the nice white people in churches. You see? And so we're habituated. So what, and I use habits for a reason because in, in coming out of, sorry, I'm going to go a little bit nerdy here, but coming out of my reading of Aristotle and John Dewey, habits are the key to character. I used to tell my son all the time when he played basketball, you got to put up 500 shots because when you get tired, habit will kick in. And if you don't work on your form and do it right, when you get tired, that bad habit will kick in. Bad habits are tied to oft- oftentimes to bad character. So what does the value gap do? The value gap gets, acquires its life in how we're habituated, how we're habituated to live. And then that in turn distorts our characters. We're willing to throw democracy into the trash bin. For the value gap. We can't become the kinds of people that democracy requires because of it. I sadly think that your grandmother, Ruby Wilson, would not be surprised by what happened in Mississippi this year in the special election. That would have been what she would have expected. And I think it's what I heard from so many black friends in Mississippi, what they expected the outcome to be, even though they clearly saw Cindy Hyde-Smith for what some white Mississippians struggled to see. And what her, her family's history, And too. to see what her comments yeah. uh, represented. On the other hand, do you think that this era of Donald Trump is helping us at least be more open in how we talk about race? And do you think it's causing people to at least see perhaps just a teeny little bit more that, yeah, this is not a problem that we can just not address by not talking about it, not making people uncomfortable? To a certain degree, yes. It's, it's an inflection point. It's, it's an interregnum, right? Or to use uh, Walt Whitman's language, we're in the aftertimes, right? And the aftertimes is a moment of transition between Right, the extraordinary event that unsettled ways of life and the new way of being in the world that's trying to come into into the world. So we're in an interesting inflection point. Our history suggests that we're not going to do well because we haven't in these moments. I got two historians in front of me, so you guys can you know the record is is what it is. I think part of the what we have to do is is to figure out, and it's going to be so hard. It's going to be so hard. James Baldwin has this, this incredibly provocative formulation. And he said it from the time he was, when he first emerged as, 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 as a leading voice to the time he died in 1987. He says, I'm not a nigger. Never have been a nigger. The question is, why did you need the nigger in the first place? And until we answer that question, honestly, and it's not just simply folks who are the N-word, folks who, who are Muslims, folks who are 
quote unquote illegal aliens. All why do we need this this in the first place? Until we understand that and grapple with it, we can't become the new creation. We can't become the new kinds of human beings that the world requires. So Jimmy is always saying, you know, we have to go back to first things. We have to, you know, Revelation 5, we have to go back to those first things. We have to kind of see what was at the heart of that initial articulation of what it meant to be free, what it meant to be, uh, what democracy in in this particular place was supposed to look like. What would that look like without the distortion that's at its heart? And that's going to be a hard conversation to have without people feeling guilty, without feel, people feeling indicted, without people feeling like somebody's engaged in the shakedown, right? You know, all of this stuff that kind of comes with this conversation, right? How can we leave behind the old rituals and be washed anew? I don't know. This is just my first beginning. Not first. It's one of my beginnings. Um, <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah, no, it absolutely, it absolutely does. When you talked about the racial habits, one of the things I was struck by was not just the habits themselves, but was the ignorance on the part of the majority of people, of white people, of these habits. And it kind of brought me back to – I was listening to your book and I, it brought me back to – I remember watching Ann Romney at the 2012 convention. And she stood up and in all sincerity, she said, Mitt wasn't handed anything he built it. Now, I I think she believes that, but you describe so articulately and so comprehensively that that system was set up, that he was going to get there and that more importantly, others were going to be excluded from that. So he was handed this – and again, you describe it as this system and these habits that make people like that think that they worked hard and that they achieved and that the people who don't don't get there because they didn't. Yeah, remember Talk I, about that. I, I, just, I tell that story once of one of this, this guy, I forget where he was. I think he was in Buffalo who, who wanted to take, wanted to get a job. And he says, the problem with these white folks, black folks is that they're lazy. They don't want to work hard. And, you know, they don't want to get things on their own. And it turns out that he got his job because his dad knew the guy in the union. And then his friend gave him the test, and, you know, all of this stuff. And we were, and part of what I was trying to talk about is that, you know, these robust networks, that oftentimes what is often viewed as kind of overt acts of prejudice is just simply what's going on in how opportunities are being hoarded through these networks. And because we're such a segregated society, my networks aren't as robust as yours. And so as opportunities pass along in those networks, they don't pass along in these other spaces. And then there's this assumption, right? You've just got to make a radical, you have to draw this radical assumption, right? That all of these black folk and all of these, in, in all of these urban centers are just making at every turn just very bad decisions at every turn. And that just seems to strain the truth of the matter. I mean, that just, how do you, you have to concede that that's what's going on as if we never had a dual labor market. As if we didn't have a dual housing market. Well, you have to accept the premise that people actively make choices that go against the interest of their children and their families. And I've never met a poor person who loves being poor. I just just don't. I just <laughs> never met. A, I made. I met some poor people who made bad choices. Or that doesn't want the best for, for their, their family. Exactly right. So, so part of what I was trying to do is that we have to tell ourselves a story, in order for us to to reconcile ourselves with the reality right in front of us. And you know the the idea that. Uh, Donald Trump had to make it on his own because he, you know, his father just gave him a small loan, a million dollars. 
And when we realized that he was the beneficiary of a criminal organization in some ways, and not in some ways, and you kind of say, well, that's, that's, what, that's what you're talking about, right? You, you're saying that's it, right? When we look at for every $100 is in terms of when we think about black wealth and white, the wealth gap. And we know what this is rooted in, right? It's not rooted in the fact that black folk don't save. It's rooted in the fact that, I mean, let's put it this way. Uh, it's rooted in the fact that the country has a long history of, of, of racism. 68 was the last piece of major legislation passed in, in the great society. Whether you agree with the premise or not, let's just concede, let's just concede this. So th- this is talk, concede to me yep. the, the, the basic no, the housing, yeah. yeah. So there is this effort to address systemic uh, segregation and its material effects. And it has a, it's, it's happening within a bounded period of time. So let's just say from 54 to 68, from Brown v. Board to Fair Housing Act, that's 14 years. 14 years, we're going to try, we're going to erase all that happened since, since the antebellum period. 12 years later, Reagan is elected. And he's elected in part to dismantle the conception of government that undergirded the attempt to redress generations of, of policy that had government is not is not the solution. It right. is so, the problem. So just imagine. So people think in twelve years, the last piece of major legislation was sixty eight. So folks were making the claim that in twelve years, everything had been rectified. Everything had, everything was clear. Right. Everything was all right and that we needed to shift our emphasis. Right. And so part of part of whether you believe in big, big government's role or not, part of it involves a kind of honesty with the facts of the matter. And you you're talking from a theoretical and historical perspective, but I feel like you have such a unique personal perspective, having grown up in Moss Point, Mississippi, and now you are the chair of a department at Princeton University. Can you imagine? No, can't imagine that. What has your life experience taught you about how Americans deal with race in the South and the North, rich and poor within classes? You know, the biggest thing for me is to try to resist this tendency to read me as the exceptional Negro, right? That my my journey, my, my uh, success is an indication that, that all black people can be as successful. I know, I know the luck. I, I know how hard I've worked. Uh, but I do know that there are, that there are realities that, that make um, my success not generalizable, right? That it's not an opportunity that is available to everyone. I still think about Steve Richmond from home, who was a mathematical genius, um, who we, because, you know, I was in those advanced classes and so it was only about two or three of us in all of our classes as we moved through um, middle school and or junior high school and high school. I think about what would have what his life would have been like if a different set of choices and opportunities were were in front of him. It's it's been a it's been a hard journey because I'm I'm really angry, right? And I'm really I'm really angry. And and you try to figure out how to give voice to a vision of love. While you take your anger so se- while you take your anger seriously, it's kind of King's dilemma. Exactly. This is why I'm so attracted to Jimmy Baldwin, because he was so angry, but he knew, he understood the importance of love, not love in some abstract sense. You know, uh, it's not just simply agape, 
but it's it's a combination of of, of agape and philia and and eros, and you know it's that he says it in in, not, in the fire next time in 1963 he says we must join together like lovers if we are to achieve our country and and that f- I've always been struck by that phrase because like lovers I mean to me it's it's a phrase that that suggests vulnerability you know you stand before the person you love you're you're naked they can see all your blemishes all your faults right what does it mean to instantiate a kind of love that bears the soul of human beings so that we can see each other. And to do that at the same time that I'm so angry about the injustice in the country, right? Um, and trying to figure out how can I express that anger in a loving way so that we can open up space so that you, can, I, you and I can be different kinds of people together. Um, and so the journey from Mississippi uh, with my mother who dropped out of school in the ninth grade to have her first baby to my dad who was a, a hard man who worked at the post office and he used to sweat out his belts. They used to rot because, you know, delivering mail in Mississippi in June and July is is is, is work. And, you know, they didn't, didn't have – he had to carry the bag then, uh, not just simply the, drive the car, right? Um, and so he knew he had precocious kids. So he tried to figure out how to make a future for us, but he wasn't the most loving fellow in the world. Um, and to have an opportunity to go to Morehouse where I didn't have to worry about being, you know, an affirmative action baby. I could just simply come to an understanding of who I was as, as, a, as a man, as a human being, to learn, to think, to fall in love with ideas and then to meet Cornell West. And, <laughs> and so, you know, it's not but grace, you know? It's a kind of grace that, that you, have to, you have to acknowledge. It's a kind of grace and blessing. So I'm not an, I'm not an exception to anything, but, you know, I'm, not an, I'm an exception to the rule. I'm not the rule. But why I feel your experience is so important is because you do understand so many different tracks of life in America in a way that I feel that few scholars do. So your perspective is so important and you're practically making, I'm tearing up. What you said was so moving about love, but it's just something that we need to remember every day going forward to keep our love and our humanity as we approach these problems, as we deal with our anger, as we deal with those that we want to look at with contempt because they don't share our views. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I think I, going back to your very first question, how we tell the story reveals the limits of our understanding of justice. How we tell the story, you know, and if we tell that story in a way that, that makes us angels or blinds us to our demons, oh, then we're on the road to being monsters. And that's always the threat, right? That's always, that has always been the threat here in this place that has so much potential. And that is that we, that we allow ourselves to become the monsters who will deny the humanity and standing of the people in our midst. Wow. You put it far more beautifully than I ever could, and that's exactly why everyone should check out your book You can pick it up on Audible, download it on Audible, and I highly recommend it as a way of not just appreciating Martin Luther King on an important anniversary, but also dealing with the real legacy because I believe that's what Dr. King really would have wanted. And that's something that you have written quite a bit about, how Dr. King wouldn't want us to be afraid and to 
overly sanitize the reality of life in America for African-Americans. Amen. We talk about the final speech, the mountaintop speech, and we you yeah. really, you and Elise both put together perfectly where Dr. King was in his life and his career and his emotional state. And yet that's an optimistic speech. And I mean that by he tells the story and it gets lost because we all remember the, the end. end. Right. But he talks about visiting all the great places in history and he wouldn't stop because he wanted to be right there right now where he was and we're going to get to the promised land. I've seen it. I'm looking over. He didn't say when, but he said it. And I've always thought that people forget that the final words that Dr. King spoke were from the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Mine eyes have seen the glory. And he goes back to that. But talk about how with all of that, he can still he could still remain optimistic that we were going to get there despite all the trials, despite all the adversity, despite all the ostracization that he felt in the movement and outside. Well, so I would first, I think, you know, I think you're absolutely right to, to kind of think about the speech in its totality, just like we must think about the March on Washington, the I Have a Dream speech in its totality. And King is trying to make the argument, not only for the Poor People's Campaign, but for the the claims and demands of the garbage workers who were organizing in Memphis at that time. So he is in Memphis, right, organizing on behalf of workers, uh, one of whom been crushed in a garbage truck. Right? So, so that context is important. But I'm going to push back a little bit because yeah. it wasn't optimistic. Okay. That's, not this, why, that's why I ask. It's not this Panglossian optimism of Voltaire, you know, that we right. see in Voltaire's Candide. You know, we just must tend to our gardens. No, no, he's hopeful. Optimism is different than hope. And his is a blues-soaked hope. That is to say, uh, there's a sense in which hope is the, the, the battle armor against the fear of failure. That it allows him to imagine a future that's not guaranteed, but is different than now. And to the extent to which I can imagine it, I can fight for it. But there's no guarantee that it will actually come into being. Optimism believes... That, you know, this, the arc of the universe, this is early king, the arc of the universe bends towards justice. We just got to bend it, right? It's the, it's the human action that is important, right? I want to clip that, though, and just share it as a soundbite over the internet because I think that's a really important way of encapsulating this moment for so many Americans who are so dispirited right. by the political process, by the lack of empathy that they see among our leadership, by the lack of compassion, by what they see as the futility of pushing the fight forward and fighting for a better America. And I think that's maybe the most important lesson we can learn from Reverend yeah. King. Yeah. You know, I mean, the thing is that, you know, you have to, how do you see beyond the opacity of one's condition? I come from a people who were enslaved. And you got to say, well, how did they see beyond the fact that they were owned by somebody else? How could they imagine freedom when everything about their lives were defined by domination? So you have to be able to imagine and otherwise. And that imagining is not rooted in, in, a, in a sense that it's going to happen, but it allows for an orientation to the future as it could be over and against the way the present is currently. So in some ways, you know, uh, here, here, I'm going to sound like I'm going nerdy again. You know, it's Ralph Waldo Emerson's, you know, God speaks to us through our imaginations. 
So that ability to see beyond the opacity of now right, is so critical. And I always tell my students when I quote Emerson in that way, I said, if God speaks to us through our imaginations, then what is the devil doing? Trying to keep you from seeing the world otherwise. So in that moment when King says, you know, I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land. I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. I may not get there with you. Right. That that moment. Right. In that moment, he's 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 invoking a language to get people to see beyond the currency of now. Right. But it's also a moment where he's drawing on this language that is so critical to America's self-conception. He figured in himself as Moses. And this is an exodus moment. Right. And that 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 transformation is going to happen. This is not exodus in the way in which um, uh, what is his name? David. David Brooks talked about in the New York Times, right, where the Exodus narrative. It's very simple. Yeah, the Exodus narrative is this consensus story. This is what we can have in order to have the consensus story that we need. When, in fact, for black folk, Exodus has always meant that pharaohs resided in Washington, D.C. Right. Uh, You know, right. that America was Egypt. Not the promised land. And so here King is drawing on that language in this moment. And so it, it is it is it is a powerful kind of invocation to see the future otherwise. But it's it's blues soaked. And I say it's blues soaked because, you know, there's this wonderful line by B.B. King. He says, nobody loves me but my mother. But she, but she could be jiving too. <laughs> <laughs> so it's blues soaked. I was struck by when you discussed de Tocqueville. And I, I, I loved that you said he made a mistake Tell, talk to our listeners about that because as, as the historians, I just thought that was dead on. And I think it's a point sort of worth drawing out a little bit. Well, you- I have that quote pulled up. Tocqueville's mistake, I tell my students, is our mistake. Americans often speak of freedom while giving little care to the great legacy of unfreedom at the heart of the American project. We continue to keep separate the American idea and white supremacy. Right, right. You know. That's the three races chapter in, in De Tocqueville's Democracy in America, right? You know, and it's this idea that you can think about democracy apart from the ways in which slavery, the genocide around in Native Americans, right, shape and inform the articulation of those principles, right? So the three races chapter, right, is, is an, it's not an afterthought, but it's not constitutive of his account of democracy itself. Now, if it's the case, as I argue implicitly in the book, that the value gap distorts our character, to see ourselves as valued more than others because we're white, leads us to make decisions that will distort our commitment to democracy itself. So Abraham Lincoln can't be the kind of man that his idea of democracy requires because of his willingness to concede to the value gap. So he will compromise it repeatedly, even as he decries uh, slavery as an evil on the land. Or you think about someone like Walt Whitman, when you read Leaves of Grass and you read it over the course of the, the history of the poem, you'll see in the beginning, in the early publication of the poem, there's all of this stuff about the evil of slavery. He even occupies the voice of the slave in the poem. But by the last edition of the poem, he redacts all of it because he's against the evil of slavery, but he's against the evil of black citizenship. He condemns one, but he's very skeptical of the other. 
Right. So by Tocqueville separating him out, separating it out, he makes the mistake. It's like reading Jefferson's, you know, notes, that moment in the book where I say, look, Jefferson gives us that famous phrase about he shudders. Right. He, he's he's fearful of the, of, 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 of the punishment for slavery. That's a paraphrase. He gives us that 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 famous formulation in the context of his conversation or his discussion of Southern children witnessing uh, brutal beatings of slaves because he's saying it's affecting their character and the moral standing of the slave doesn't come into view. He's really concerned about what happens to the character of the child who witnesses the violence, right? Just as de Tocqueville is more worried about the character of the Southerner who bears the, who, who experiences the benefit of having slavery in in her midst, right? It makes them lazy. And today, and more... you could argue that this is people concerned about civility and the coarseness uh, of American politics, and not about the impact, the real impact of Donald Trump's policies yeah. on men and women, not just in America but all around the world. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yeah, you know, civility can be the mask of cruelty. You know. <laughs> I hope that everyone is picked up by listening to this podcast just how generous Eddie is uh, in humoring me and being my friend and talking with me about ideas, given that he is just brilliant and has such a command of literature, history, politics. Uh, he really is such a gem. And thank you so much for spending so much time and sharing your wisdom with us. And I still am going to keep on you about running for uh, office no, no, in no, our no. native Mississippi. <laughs> He's too smart after, for that. He's after, too smart well, for that. After um, one day on Morning Joe, I actually joked about oh it. And I'm God. like, Eddie's going to run for Senate. And he got emails from people saying, I'd like to donate to your campaign, which I think shows there's something there. There's no. something there, Eddie. Uh, we miss the public intellectual uh, American life, and you are exactly the man to fill those shoes. I know you're too smart to do it, but uh, Elise is right. We would, the country would be better off if we had... Uh, I prefer these kind of conversations. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Steve, I don't know about you, but one of my resolutions this year is to get to all of those books that you and I have been talking about, and Audible is going to help me do that. Absolutely, Adam. I'll be doing the same thing. In my car, I'll be listening to an Audible title. On the train, headphones on, Audible book. Well, as you know, I spent half my life on airplanes, and an Audible book is the perfect travel companion. If you're a multitasker like me, Steve, and Elise, Audible is the perfect answer. Listen during your workout running errands, or even while cooking and cleaning. Audible, because words matter. Audible, because words matter. Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.